Chapter Ten of the Mystery of the Locks by E. W. Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Ten. Tug Whittle's Booty. After resting a while and looking carefully around to make sure that they were not watched, Tug and Silas crawled cautiously back to the bank which overlooked the boat and its singular occupant, and after warning his companion to remain where he was shaking his hand at him like a club, Tug began to climb down the bank, feeling every step as he went with the cunning stealth of a tiger. Gradually he worked his way to the water's edge. So careful was he that even Silas, watching him with breathless interest above, could not hear his step and at last he stood on the brink of the water. The boat was in an eddy, floating easily about, and when it came within Tug's reach, he clapped the handkerchief over the woman's mouth, tied it in a knot at the back of her head, and came clambering up the bank with her on his shoulders. Without saying a word, he started to retrace his steps, only stopping once or twice to see that his booty was not smothering, when, finding the little woman all right, he went on over the fences and sloughs and through the alleys and yards until he entered his own door. "'Now then, sister,' he said, putting the woman on her feet and breathing heavily from his exercise, "'tell us who you are. Davy, make a light.' Silas came lagging in about this time and did as he was told, though he was a long time about it for the matches were damp, and the flames slow in coming up. Everything seemed to be damp in Davy's Bend, and it was no wonder that the matches were slow and sleepy, like the other inhabitants of the town. Therefore they came to life with a sputtering protest against being disturbed. While Silas was rubbing them into good humor, Tug was closely watching the little woman with his great eye, and getting his breath, and when the light was fairly burning he went over to her side and removed the handkerchief from her mouth. "'Gentlemen!' she cried out in a weak voice as soon as she could. "'Gentlemen, in the name of God, I appeal to you as gentlemen!' "'Don't gentlemen me,' Tug said, bringing the light over to look at the woman's face. "'I'm not a gentleman.' I'm a thief, and I've stolen a woman. Nor is he a gentleman, pointing to Davy and holding his head to one side to get a bead on him. He's the greatest scoundrel that ever lived. Look at the audacious villain now. Look at him. Did you ever see a person who looks so much like the devil? And he is the devil when he gets started. He's keen to get at you now, and I'll have trouble with him if you are at all unreasonable. Davy looked like anything but a villain, as he meekly watched the pair from the other side of the room. Indeed, he was thinking that Tug was carrying the matter entirely too far, and was becoming alarmed. But Tug did not share this feeling of apprehension, for he seemed desperately in earnest as he held the lamp close to the woman's face who tried to shield it from his sight with her thin, trembling hands, and cried out in the same weak voice, 
"'Gentlemen, in the name of God, I appeal to you as gentlemen.' A very small woman, with shriveled face and sharp figures, was Tug's booty, and she trembled violently as she piteously held out her hands to the two men. Tug thought of her as the key to the problem he had been attempting to solve, so he stood between her and the door to prevent escape. But Silas felt sure that the woman had but lately risen from a sickbed, for she was weak and trembling, and from sitting long in the damp river air there was a distressed and painful flush in her face. "'Come now, sister,' Tug said, seating himself in front of her and frowning like a pirate. "'Tell us what you know, and be carried back to your boat. If you refuse to do it, we will take you on a journey to the Hedgepath graveyard, in the woods over the river, where we will erect a stone sacred to the memory of an obstinate woman. Which will you have? Use your tongue, which will you have?' But the woman made no other reply than to appeal to them as gentlemen, in the name of God, and cry and wring her hands. "'In case you ever see that foxy companion of yourn again, which is extremely doubtful, for I have a companion who murders for the love of it—here now, take your hands off that knife, will you?' Tug said, by way of parenthesis to Silas, looking at him sharply. Then, going over to him, he pretended to take a knife out of Davy's inside coat pocket and hide it in the cupboard. "'If you ever see your friend sneak again, say to him that I intend to get his head. He is bothering a friend of mine, and I intend to create a commotion inside of him for it.' Tug walked over to the table where the lamp stood, and, taking the package of poison from his pocket, carefully divided it into two doses, a large one for a man and the other for a smaller person, probably a woman. He also took occasion, being near to Davy, to whisper to him that the woman reminded him of his wife's sister, Sis. "'You are evidently a married woman, sister,' the bold rascal said, seating himself in front of his captive and looking at her in the dignified manner which distinguished him. I suppose you were very handsome as a girl, and the men fell desperately in love with you, and were very miserable in consequence. But I will let you into a secret. You are bravely over your beauty now. I suppose your mother braided your hair and did all the work, that your hands might be as pretty as your face. And certainly she believed that while the boys might possibly fail in life, you would be all right, and marry a prince and repay her for her kindness. Your poor mother rented a piano for you, too, I reckon, and hired you a teacher, and when you could drum a little, she thought you could play a great deal, and felt repaid for all her trouble, believing that you would turn out well, and make your brothers feel ashamed of themselves for being so worthless. And while I don't know it, I believe that she paid five dollars to somebody to make you an artist, and that you painted roses and hollyhocks on saucers and plates, which your poor mother, in the kindness of her heart, recognized and greatly admired. I shall believe this as long as I live, for you look like a painter and a pianoist out of practice. 
This train of thought amused Mr. Whittle so much that he paused as if to laugh, but he apparently thought better of it, though his scalp crawled over on his forehead, an oddity which distinguished him when he was amused. "'Did your poor mother get to sleep peacefully at night after working all day for you?' inquired Mr. Whittle fiercely. "'You don't answer, but you know she didn't. You know she spent the night in a wrangling with your father to induce him to give her the money that she might buy you more ribbons and millinery and dry goods, and kid gloves, probably, although your brother Bill was out at his toes and hadn't so much as a cotton handkerchief. And how your mother went on when your husband came courting you. He wasn't good enough for you then, whoever he was.' though I'll bet he thinks he's good for you now, whoever he is. And what a time you must have had borrowing silverware and chairs for the wedding. I've been married, and I know. Your tired mother hoped that when her children grew up they would relieve her and love her and be good to her. But I'll bet you find fault because she didn't do more for you, and that your brother Bill, who ran away because you had all the pie in the house, is taking care of her, providin' she ain't dead from bother and too much work, which is likely. And after all this trouble in your behalf, look at you now." The little woman seemed to be paying some attention to what he was saying, for she looked at him timidly out of the corners of her black eyes a few times, and occasionally forgot to wring her hands and cry. "'Look at you now, I say. Your health has gone off after your beauty, for you seem to have neither with you, and I find you wandering around at night with a thief. A great fall you've had, sister, providing you ever were young and pretty, for I was never acquainted with a worse-looking woman than you are, and if you knew my wife you would be very indignant, for she has the reputation of being a terror for looks." When I was younger, I fell in love with every girl I met, and had no relief until they married. Then I soon got over it, for you ought to know how they fade under such circumstances. But you are worse than the rest of them. You are so ugly that I feel sorry for you. Honestly, I wonder that you do not blush in my presence, and I am not handsome, God knows. I really feel sorry for you. But in connection with your friend Prowler, you are annoying an amiable and a worthy gentleman, who happens to be a friend of Mr. Blood's, the party sitting opposite you. And I fear he does not feel sorry for you. A little less of that word gentleman, sister, if you please. The woman was appealing to them again as before. Gentlemen, in the name of God, I appeal to you. "'Promise to take your friend Prowler and leave this country,' Mr. Whittle continued, "'and never return, and you shall go free. But if you refuse, blood.' Tug sprang up and glared savagely at his meek little partner, at the same time advancing toward him. "'You shan't satisfy that devilish disposition of yearn by shooting a woman in the back when I'm around, you cutthroat,' he said." Haven't I always been ready to join you in putting men out of the way, and haven't I enjoyed the pleasure of it with you? 
then why do you want to take the credit of this job to yourself and enjoy it alone? You must wait, blood, until she speaks. We may forgive her, providing she speaks up cheerful and don't attempt to deceive us. Again Tug pretended to take a dangerous weapon from his companion, standing between Davy and the prisoner while about it, after which he regarded him for a few moments in contemptuous silence. "'It's your tongue, sister, and not your tears, as will do you good in this difficulty,' Tug said in answer to a fresh burst of grief from the woman. "'I'll give you five minutes to decide between tongue and tears.' At the end of that time, if it's tears, the cravings of that bad man in the corner shall be satisfied. Blood, where is the watch you took from the store? Ain't got it? My guess is that you've lost it gambling as usual. Well, I'll count three hundred seconds, sister, since we have no watch. One, two, three, here we go. Tug looked reverently up at the ceiling, and appeared to be engaged in counting for two or three minutes, occasionally looking at the woman and then at Silas, who thought Tug had been counting at least half an hour already. Two hundred and twenty-one, two hundred and twenty-two, two hundred and twenty-three, he counted aloud. Fifth call, sister, the time is going. Two hundred and twenty-four... Two hundred and... At this moment there was a strange interruption to the proceedings. A tall man wearing a rubber coat, which reached below his knees, opened the door, and, leaving it open, stood just upon the inside, carrying a pistol in his right hand, which hung by his side. "'The shadow!' both men thought at once and very determined and ugly looked the shadow with his long, sallow face and dark mustache. "'Alice,' he said to the woman, "'come out.' The woman quickly jumped up and hurried outside. The shadow followed, backing out like a lion-tamer leaving a cage and closing the door after him. But while he stood inside the door, although he was there only a moment, both men noticed a strange peculiarity. The upper part of his left ear was gone, cut off clean as if with a knife. And this peculiarity was so unusual that they remarked it more than his face. The circumstance gave them both an impression that the shadow was a desperate man and that he was accustomed to fierce brawls. Tug and Silas looked at each other in blank dismay a long time after the mysterious pair had disappeared, not venturing to look out, fearing it might be dangerous. But finally Tug said, "'Silas, I must have a gun. Do you happen to have one?' Silas shook his head. "'Then I must steal one, for I need a gun.' The shadow looks so much like an uncle of my wife's that I am more determined than ever to kill him. Whereupon he went over to the table, emptied the two packages of poison onto the floor, and went to bed. End of chapter 10 Recording by Roger Moline